Hello, everyone. I'm Terry Francis, and I conducted the interview that you are about to listen to with uh, my longtime comrade in the humanities, Triandria Westworm. This conversation took place um, in the before times at, um, at IU in the Franklin Studios in conjunction with her visit to talk about um, some new work that she was um, pursuing around questions of race and gaming. The conversation uh, really sparkles. I remember it really well. And I appreciate the way that, that Dr. Russworm allowed for this exploration of how she came to scholarship, how she came to film study and, um, and has pursued it as a creative pursuit and how analysis can be soulful um, and, in her words, promiscuous. So I'm delighted to present this to, to you in the continued aftertimes of, uh, of COVID-19. Enjoy. I still don't really understand video <laughs> games. I remember, I, cause I kind of remember like it, um, in graduate school, dear listener, um, Triandria and I went to graduate school together. I don't even think I properly introduced the the guest today is <laughs> Dr. Triandria Russworm, right. associate professor at University of Massachusetts. Um, Thank you, uh, Dr. Francis. <laughs> Amherst. You know, we got to use those titles. Hey, and those titles. Hey. Hey, I'm still playing my student loans on those titles. You okay? know what I mean? Let's be real. And as I pointed <laughs> out to my class on the first day, I said, you know, you're looking at one of the rare black women professors. We make up something like three or four wow, yeah. percent of the professoriate, and it's not for lack of will or mm-hmm, intelligence. Mm-hmm. This is a very present structural issue. Right, <laughs> they started right, right. clapping. I don't know what that <laughs> means, and they all call me Dr. Francis, so I don't have that issue anymore. But oh, they call me by my first name. Yeah, they know yeah, <laughs> what yeah, this means. Yeah. an avid reader and storyteller and I always say I played games you know for as long as I can remember but I talked and told stories made up my own stories probably even more often than that so my aunt would make me paper dolls and I would sort of color them and tell stories about their lives and like my dolls I had a huge Cabbage Patch Kid collection I would line them up and we were on a journey. And so those are kind of my earliest like artistic memories. Mm-hmm. And and then I had a little like Apple computer um, that someone kind of passed down to me or, you know, upgraded and gave me this computer when I was in probably like, I don't know, sixth grade or so. Mm-hmm. 
And then I started writing my own novels. <laughs> like I would read, um, you know, romance novels like Daniel Steele or like V.C. Andrew, kind of these horror romance, like weird incest novels or yeah. I, I, Flowers in the Attic. Like I'm, I'm not sure I would, if I could revisit that. I'd probably question why I was reading that. But I read it and I would write my own versions of that stuff. And so I had these like archives of reams of paper where I was just telling some, you know, very plot heavy mm-hmm. stories. So I think that's probably my earliest memories of trying to be something of an artist. And I actually wanted to get go to school and pursue creative writing. Well, at one point I wanted to do law, but then I was like, no, I'm really going to be a novelist. That's what I want to do. And somebody convinced me, no, you shouldn't write novels. You will never get funding for that. You should get a PhD because if you get a PhD, you can always write novels on the side and and (laughs) then you can get a fellowship. And so it was strategic to me to choose that path to like not go and pursue uh, fictional writing and creating in that way, but then to go and get a PhD in English or, you know, English, but I always say I was in an English department, but I did non-literary things in that space at the University of Chicago. I did not write novels on the side. (laughs) Fast forward to now, I did not write novels on the side. Um, I think I've come to terms with how my academic writing is still creative for me. It's not the kind of creativity that I would have imagined. And it's not kind of, it's not my hobby at all. But then I turned around and turned a lot of my hobbies into my job, like video games. I mostly write about video games and teach classes about video games. I'm kind of like exclusively doing the gaming thing these days. So that's a hobby that became mine. But before that, it was like comic books. It was like, oh, I want to think, I want to read comics. And why don't I just teach a class on comics and dystopian comics and you know literature and so I would just sort of turn my interests into my job and that's how I came to kind of well write about media and games and digital culture as well but I would say as far as that media journey is concerned my first love and interests were around um, black representations of blackness in mainstream film. So, you know, I was interested in like Whoopi Goldberg films and Set It Off. And I was in, I, I think I like to say now I was in love with Sidney Poitier because Sidney Poitier was so like attractive in so many complex ways to me. And I just felt like there were riddles in him and in his image that I needed to figure out. And that at the time I thought no one was asking. So uh, early on in, you know, my, my academic journey, I was just fixated on, on Sidney Poitier. and was like, mm-hmm. I have to watch all his films. I have to understand why he seemed so magnificent, why so many people loved him, why so many people didn't like him, <laughs> and um, why that sort of charisma, you know, that he had carried through mm-hmm. so significant, significantly. And so that began, and that was a big part of my my book was sort of focusing on Sidney Poitier and the roles that he played and kind of dislodging them a little just from a stereotype of like, this is bland, you know, plastic, like black masculinity um, and trying to tell different stories and new stories about him. Um, And for me, just kind of like psychoanalytic or psychological paradigms and reparative projects that Mm -hmm. the nation's always talking about healing anyway, uh, seemed to stick to his image. And so wanting to kind of untangle those paradoxes uh, became a project. You listen to me. You say you don't want to tell me how to live my life. So what do you think you've been doing? You tell me what rights I've got or haven't got and what I owe to you for what you've done for me? Let me tell you something. 
I owe you nothing. If you carried that bag a million miles, you did what you were supposed to do. Because you brought me into this world. And from that day, you owed me everything you could ever do for me, like I will owe my son if I ever have another. But you don't own me. You can't tell me when or where I'm out of line or try to get me to live my life according to your rules. You don't even know what I am, Dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I feel, what I think. And if I tried to explain it the rest of your life, you will never understand. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has lain down and died will the dead weight of you be off our backs. Because I'm, I mean, what strikes me about the way that creativity manifested for you is the solitude and mm -hmm. the independence, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. both of which are modes of being that you have to be very comfortable with right, to right, be right. To a successful academic. But then you also said that um, you played games with the dolls. Yeah, like I am a very introverted extrovert if that makes sense i think yeah. a lot of people will describe themselves as introverts who are extroverted mm -hmm. but i'm a like introverted extrovert like i'm a very social um well yeah i yeah i'm an introverted extrovert in that like i i was an only child mm -hmm. so i had a working a single working mom who was like you come home from school and you lock that door and no one needs to know you know you you figure it out you make a snack you you do your homework whatever so i spent a lot of time entertaining myself like after school when my mom was working she worked evenings so i come home after school and there was no way i could go out and like play i probably wanted to do that but I would compensate by being like, okay, I'm going to tell these stories. I'm yeah. going to play in, you know, the safer space of being at home. Um, and it's going to be kind of like a social play that's alone. So mm -hmm. I think that's why I staged all my animals and my dolls yeah. and told them stories and then wrote the stories down and then, you know, created stuff in my head and read a lot. So if I wasn't doing that, I was reading. And I would have the TV on all the time. So I was watching Different Strokes and a lot of shows from the 80s, The Facts of Life. Life, you know those sitcoms they were on growing pains you know whatever oh yeah i remember playing in the background while i was multitasking doing my homework writing stories mm -hmm. playing with my dolls so yeah i think being comfortable being alone and being in that space and creating in that space but wanting to connect and wanting to yeah. kind of externalize that play or that creativity and that work was also there just started assigning my work in my classes because mm. like after all this time I mean I think I've been teaching at UMass this might be my 11th or 12th year yeah. I don't know I lost track I think it's the 11th um, and I just started assigning stuff that I wrote. Like, I didn't want to talk about, like, I was always talking about what I thought, yeah. but I didn't want to formally talk about it. Yeah. And a lot of times, like, the, when I've written something, I'm going to say that in a much more straightforward way than me just kind of rambling about something and going off on a tangent, which, I don't know, may be productive, but, you know, the kind of quotable stuff is, yeah. uh, is, is, is already written. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but I just had a discomfort with kind of, 
you know, I think writing is kind of, is definitely vulnerable. And like most of the time when you publish, it's kind of like the out there receives this and you don't know. It's kind of a anonymous out there in a way. So you're like, I'm communicating with my people that I imagine. Right. But then to communicate with your people who are right here and sort of see you in the flesh and yeah. all your flaws and they have to deal with you week to week. Yeah. And then you're like, no, here are my ideas. Plus the content is quite, quite often things that my students don't want to, mm. uh, will not agree with. And and will especially around gaming and really um, kind of police and protect. So mm. I think as a protective move, I never really assigned my writing, but I've just started doing that and I'm yeah. not terribly comfortable with it. But I'm like, okay, we're reading me today. And mm. here's what I thought I said. Here's what I tried to say. Yeah. Here's what I meant, you know, that kind of stuff. But well, like your thinking in general on media pushes against some very sensitive spots, wounds, I would even mm. say, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. terms of like representation presentation right because if I understand you correctly what you're saying is I know you want to be represented Mm -hmm. I know you want to feel seen but the movie cannot see you and um, the movie cannot see you because it's calling to this bifurcated audience Mm -hmm. of yes this is totally familiar to me Mm -hmm. it is also alien to me and you're not only relating to what you think you're seeing or the way that you think you're being seen, but you're also relating to these other people in the room. And so there's a little bit of like an unsettling between them not seeing you being seen in the way that you're going to agree with. It's like a problem of recognition Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than representation being this sort of solution. Right, exactly, right. That's definitely, I think, what I meant when I was talking about the politics of recognition, Mm -hmm. um, which I hadn't heard anybody talk about it in that way. I mean, there are lots of people that write about recognition from different branches of thought, and in in, in The Blackness is Burning, I really settled on psychoanalytic models. We'll start it with Hegel and, like, Hegelian models of master-slave dialectics, and then um, turn to different psychoanalytic models to kind of tease that out. Like, what does recognition mean? What does it mean when we're showing something and we're saying like this is a person this is a human you know nothing but a man you know I'm just gonna start throwing out movie titles mm-hmm. to like uh, events what I'm saying you know like I am a person you know yeah. or Antoine Fisher I'm still standing I'm yes. still strong you didn't destroy me yeah and so while that may be a victory very well for the part of the subject for the person doing that work the way that is received and really mediated to use a term and received is going to be variable depending on on those Mm -hmm. different spectators, those different audiences. There's all this work. And what I was trying to say is it's also a psychological project. It's psychological Mm -hmm. work that's being done. And the works are drawing on that. They're encouraging that. They're cashing in on our inner subjective, psychologically oriented mass culture. And that Mm -hmm. is longstanding across film, you know, across media, Mm -hmm. really across uh, media. So, yeah, so there are going to be these different spectators, the identifying spectator who says, like, that's me in the film. You know, if we're thinking about a film like Antoine Fisher, you see something similar in your own story, and that inspires you because you're like, he survived it, all that stuff, and I remember that, and I survived it in the same way. So by making that connection, you're already doing different work around, like, who Antoine Fisher is because you're mapping your own story onto it and that's an encouraged type of connection to make as spectators and then there's the spectators who don't see themselves in that image but are seeing because of the trials because of the story that we're told oh that is a person I can empathize with Mm -hmm. that person but very quickly on that path of spectatorship 
I say it becomes more about the spectator. In both cases, identifying and about the empathizing. We know that rituals of empathy, however you talk about them, Mm -hmm. um, whether you're using psychoanalytic models or not, it's always about the person doing the work. This is what yeah. people say about philanthropy, right? Yes. That like it makes you feel good to give. Mm-hmm. It's less about the cause quite often and more about you and how you feel and what right. it's teaching you about you. It's teaching you about you. <laughs> and so that is the identifying, uh, that's the empathizing spectator. And then there's a third spectator who's just like not going to do it at all the resistant type of spectator Mm. and so that spectator is strategic i call it resistant spectatorship in the book but i actually think i wouldn't have called it that now i would have probably used another term but like it's a strategic resistance of like i will not see you i i see what you're going through and i refuse you know no you're not human like they're not gonna do it and so Mm. like in sydney portier films there are quite often these racist characters who are just like no the, the project is not for them they're there to be spoofed they're there to be kind of ridiculed or shown as outside of like the democratic mission or on the margins like you're not the center anymore um they're they're doing other work but their perspective is basically like no i'm not gonna see i don't care what you went through i'm not gonna see you as human and I've since connected some of that work around like film and television to the circulation of like viral videos, right? So people people have written about this. There's actually a black camera special issue on just black death as viral, like the viral videos of black people being killed, you know, by the police or mm-hmm. these instances of aggression and violence. And I think that very quickly we can see how that third group of spectatorship yeah. works of like oh, no, you know, he he was moving or, like, she Mm -hmm. did move and reach for something. Like, they're going to see what they want to see, what they're conditioned to see, and what they willfully want to see, regardless of everything else going on. You know, regardless of what the other positions, spectatorial positions would say, Mm -hmm. regardless of what the person was doing. There is, like, no objective way to communicate to that uh, group either that is just, like, strategically rejecting the work that is trying to happen there. You're giving... So you have all of those competing ways um, of receiving the image, receiving the work at play. Well, you know, all of that seems to come together in the title of um, Ava DuVernay's um, series, Mm. like, When They See Us. Mm. Like, Uh those pronouns Mm -hmm. fascinate me. Yeah, yeah. Because they seem to shift Mm. between... Mm -hmm. That they could be broadly conceived white audience mm-hmm. or a white police audience. Mm-hmm. It could be the unsympathetic yeah. spectator, uh, like a, like an on the street spectator. Yeah, and yet it could also be sympathetic somehow to a white spectator, a white liberal spectator, yep. realizing what black people see when they see us, mm, the, the mm-hmm. white person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it seemed to me like even in that title, it's like all of this, I don't even know if it's a negotiation, mm. but I think a very has to be strategic and clever right. bringing together of multiple possibilities out of the site of the visible site of black injustice. And I always wonder about those videos. Like, can we just call them white killings? Mm-hmm, Does that change mm-hmm, anything? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Be- I just murder. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I know they don't do the work that people hope they might do mm-hmm. in being able to prove something. I talked about this, I kind of right after the, because the book came out in 16, and then I remember, you know, 
going to do a keynote and there was like another, you know, another viral video and another killing, another murder. And I said, you know, especially in my video game classes, I, you know, I wonder like, okay, is today the day that we really need to talk about representation in video games? We really need to talk about any of this today. Like there are other things happening in the world that I think subordinate this, this, Mm -hmm. this need to talk about this stuff. But in that moment and trying to kind of make these connections, I realized it's all representation. You know, part of what we do with our phones and what people think they're doing is recording something that is going to prove the truth once and for all. You know, it's like you're going to be able to objectively see what happened. But that's data. Right. And like the image has always been data. So our videos with the cell phones or like someone's pulled over by the police and someone's filming the interrogation or recording the interrogation. And then how many trials and how many, you know, acquittals have there been with that kind of evidence, Mm -hmm. video evidence, you know, auditory evidence, whatever. That data has been there. But because of the process of representation and interpretation that goes into receiving that image, Mm -hmm. as well as the structural conditions under which it is received, um, there is no objective answer. There is no way of making Mm -hmm. the image say what you want it to say. And so that is something that I connect back to the work that we might do around blackness and other mm-hmm. you know forms and other media yeah so the darkest moments when it's like i don't know why we're doing any of this yeah. like can't we just sit here sometimes yes like let's just sit here and mm. you know not say anything but then other times it's like no we need readers and producers we need yeah. more readers and producers of this content mm-hmm. you know going forward to tell stories to tell new stories and also to understand how media circulates and how imagery circulates and how data is a part of that same scheme so I think that probably connects how I think about digital culture to you know the sort of past life of traditional film and television you know which is where I started I think if I could have written about games in the beginning in graduate school I certainly would have and I like to tell a story of how I was always playing the sims I was always playing video games in grad school I know (laughs) playstations and I had x I had all the systems and it was my way of detaching from grad school and blowing off steam and whatever so I was always playing my games and then I realized Anna Everett at UC Santa Barbara hosted Afro Geeks, uh, a conference. I don't know. Rayford was telling me the actual year. He says it was 2003. I thought it was 2001. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I have to figure out when it happened. But the first one I got to go to and present on The Sims. And it was like, I'm going to talk about black women playing The Sims and telling stories like with their characters. And then I was in a crowd of other people who weren't all studying games. I don't know that that many people were. But I was like, I'm with my people. There are people here who want to study like these other objects too. And you can do this. Like, I was like, professors do this. And so that was kind of the first awakening and kind of being promiscuous with my media or my yeah. texts. Like, oh, I can do all of it. I can do sometimes literature, depending on what you feel like in a given day. You know, maybe I'm analyzing a novel. Um, mostly popular fiction is what I would work with or uh, a television show or a film or a game. And so like, you can move among these spaces and try to see their connections and their differences too. I mean, as forms, they are different. But um, a lot of the themes and questions that I have kind of remain the same. Yeah. But then how is it for you then turning your hobby into work? Right. What's, 
What replaces that? What replaces hobbies? Yeah. I have so many hobbies. And so I think that might be one reason why I'm like the ho- the chronic hobbyist. Mm-hmm. And like people kind of check in with me periodically. Like, okay, what are you into now? Like we haven't talked in a while. Like what's yeah. your new hobby? And so maybe that's why I do that. Like I actually hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> I was like, doesn't everybody have a lot of hobbies? Like <laughs> no. I've been into gardening, indoor and outdoor gardening, you know, and I've so detailed. I'm a very like... um kind of methodical kind of hobbyist so I've had like spreadsheets of my plants you know and like their care needs um I don't know I'm really into I'm into dogs right now because I have a new puppy so he has a career he has like a show life and uh he's in all these competitions it's so challenging it's so rewarding and so crazy because dog people are nuts and it's so different from my like academic life like no one knows I'm a professor in there I'm teaching my dog how to hunt for rats he competes in this competition where it's called barn hunt he hunts for rats and so i know i can't write about that so you know so it's like i kind of spawn these new interests and it's like okay if i want if, if now writing about film and television or if at some point that was my job you know and like sydney portier i burned out on sydney portier decades ago right you know like i literally started writing about him in 1999 and that was 20 years ago and probably at least a clean decade ago I burned out I burned out at Sydney Portier and never wanted to see another Sydney Portier film but then as I was preparing for the talk today mm-hmm. and I was like putting my slides together I wrote a note to myself in the memo line when I retire I think I'm only going to write watch Sydney Portier films and I will love it like that's what I'm going to do in retirement is just lay on my couch and watch Sydney Portier films and I will love it i will talk back to the screen and my pleasure will be alive again for him since at some point he became my job right right so displace that as a pure hobby games are totally work now i have a pile of them to play and like um you know poor me you know i teach gaming classes i'm yeah. always playing stuff my students want to play and thinking about them in a way it doesn't take away the fun it just changes it as you know i mean we find mm-hmm. pleasure in things that are hard and challenging and we're yeah. working through, but I can't just say, oh, I'm going to pop this in and play it for relaxing. You know, maybe I'll relax, but then yeah. I'm probably going to start thinking about it and wanting to use it. Well, the interrogation is fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know? The interrogation is fun. It's animating and... It's solving problems in your head. Yeah. It's like, I'm just, you know, working on this one concept for it and coming back to it and coming back to it. Sometimes it's hard and it's tiring and mm-hmm. you're ready to be done with it. And then sometimes it's fun again. And so, um, yeah, I think I create other hobbies outside of that, that now I'm like, there's no way I could teach a class on like teaching your dog to hunt rats. Like, I'm pretty sure that's just a pure <laughs> hobby. Um, yeah, I come up with other hobbies to kind of relax and take a break from the other work that's going on creatively yeah. and intellectually. Um, but I still approach it probably like an academic. I'm like, okay, what are the rules? How do I break them? Yeah, and, and it's like, like really meticulous yeah. and really detailed. Because I remember there was a time when you were into perfumes oh, and colognes. Oh, I got so many hobbies. <laughs> I'm still into it. It's like a, it's like there are latent hobbies, you know, and then there are dominant hobbies. Yeah, yeah. I love Those them. are definitely other hobbies.
I'm interested to kind of go back to this, the shift. Maybe you would describe it differently, mm-hmm. but like from looking at like movies, movies to thinking about video games. Can you just describe that movement? You know, like I said, I had to commit to writing about Sidney Poitier. I wanted to write about Sidney Poitier. I always think of my book as about Sidney Poitier, Mm -hmm. even though maybe from the outside it doesn't appear that way. They're like, Mm. oh, it's about like popular culture and race and psychoanalysis. And I'm like, that book is Sidney Poitier. What are you talking about? Because he was just so dominant in my mind. And, you know, it came from the dissertation, though every word of that book is different from the dissertation. But he was a big part of it. There was like two Sidney Poitier chapters. And there's still... Mm-hmm. kind of like two now and then like the Sydney Portier chapter is really long and it was so you know like I there were riddles that he represented that I wanted to untangle and then I wanted to think about them in other contexts mm-hmm. so I really think about that as you know the book is a Sydney Portier book but like I said I would take breaks and just get immersed in games and mm-hmm. I would play The Sims or I would play Grand Theft Auto I remember I was working on my dissertation and I would like write for a few hours or just, you know, there's all these theatrics involved in writing. So I would like cry and write and some days would be great. And some days it'd be like, no, I don't know about this. And then I would put it down and I would play Vice City Grand Theft Auto. And that was kind of a turning point where I was always playing the Sims and other games too, but I was like, what the hell? You're in this open world and you're driving around and there was music and then your best friend betrays you. And it was like all this drama. Mm. And I was like, this is so, you know, cinematic. You know, it, the t- games were, have always been trying to be like mature as a medium in some way yeah. and, and integrate more and more cinema and, you know, animation. There's animation movies in games. So that overlap was there formally. And in terms of storytelling, like things were familiar to me, um, but it's definitely not my dissertation. So I could have new energy mm-hmm. and like playing games. And so in grad school, other than writing about The Sims and knowing that after I was done with the Sydney Portier project, I was going to write about games mm-hmm. and also the structure and the department that I was in didn't have the infrastructure to support that like I barely got to write about contemporary film at the University of Chicago I was like I want to write about the 60s on because like everything classical Hollywood like it's great it's interesting I know I'll I'll take the classes I don't want to write about that yeah and so even having the faculty to kind of help you work on that who wanted to work on that Mm -hmm. you know was hard so there's just no way I could have been like I want to write about Vice City you know (laughs) like I'm gonna write about Grand Theft Auto 3 if you do you know what that is so that just didn't seem like a possibility but it was definitely a desire for me Mm -hmm. and then when I got hired my first job I did you know my job teaching American studies classes and I had a lot of media there like I was hired to do American studies in English so I was never hired to teach literature classes and I was like good because I'm not great at that you know like I like reading for myself but I do not want to sit around and talk about a novel with like 20 like freshmen like I'm Mm -hmm. just we're not gonna make it you know (laughs) and so but let's talk about a film let me pause this clip and let's break it down I, I felt like I could do that and so that's what they hired me to do was do like American studies stuff and I lectured and I did all this heavy service and then at some point 
I was like, I want to just teach a class on video games and see how mm. that goes. And that was really early. That was probably like my third year there. I was like, you know what? I want to teach. It started with comics. I was like, I want to teach a dystopian comics class just mm-hmm. on comic books. And again, another hobby. I was reading all these comics. Yeah. I had a whole like bookcase full of comics and graphic novels because that was like another pastime. And I was like, I'm going to take that work and we're going to do visual culture in print form. And we're going to work with that. And then very quickly that class became dystopian um, games and comics. And so mm-hmm. that's a class that I still teach today. And then I started creating other gaming classes yeah. and a specialization in gaming to kind of support my interests. And yeah. also because there was so much student um, interest and momentum around yeah. that. And my classes were popular and my department was like, our classes are not filling up, but, but your classes mm. on, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing. Because they didn't know <laughs> and they didn't understand, but they were like, they're filling up, people are coming go for it. And so they just gave me free reign to yeah. to teach what I wanted to teach in game studies. And so I just kind of crafted out a curriculum yeah. that made sense to me on like, not just on games, but on like digital culture. And now we're at a point where I've been there for a while. So I'm doing the game stuff and other people are doing like digital humanities mm. and some other people are doing digital culture. And so it's like, okay, this, this is working. But, but you know, your self-making is also a very important hobby right, in your right. life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So self-experimentation, mm-hmm. self-transformation, um, like self-making, like all of that is really attracted to me. Yeah. It's like who, I guess in some ways I'm a postmodern subject. I'm like, mm-hmm. we have all these versions of ourselves, but I'm not as cynical as a lot of postmodernists about it. Mm-hmm. All these versions of ourselves, all these interests, these possibilities and like, okay, pursue them, you know, pursue what interests you and stop pursuing what doesn't. And Mm. so, yeah, I definitely felt like psychoanalysis was a theoretical frame that I could work with. Um, Of all the choices, you know, Marxism, like whatever, post-structuralism, psychoanalysis made sense to me because there were like people involved and, you know, sort of more tangible. And plus we have this general psychological psychoanalytic culture anyway. So Mm. you have all these films about like psychotherapy and, you know, just getting better and healing and all of that rhetoric so definitely that was an interest and when I first started writing about video games that's what I was writing about too so I started writing about a game called Afro Samurai which starred Samuel L. Jackson as the lead voice and it's a psychosocial it's like he has all this trauma right so like I'm like trauma in a, in a video game he's black and he's cussing people out because he's Samuel L. Jackson yeah. and so he's like this trickster figure That's amazing. and so I wrote about Afro Samurai as the racial hype man and like trying to work through his various traumas that were being presented. They were right there in the game. You know, he's haunted and stuff and he's fighting ghosts of himself. And so it was like, I can't deny what's there in front of me. Mm-hmm. So that model was was very uh, useful for sort of playing around with that and seeing that, oh, games might be doing some things that we've already seen before, yeah. even though they're doing it in this different frame and with this different structure, you know, computational logics versus cinematic logic, logics mm-hmm. and language. Um, and those two converge at places too. And so, yeah, I was, I was certainly considering that. And I think probably now still, I mean, I think about racial empathy and like the projects that are at heart in some games. 
Um, the current stuff, it may, it may have versions of that. I think there's yeah. versions of yourself and your old interests that are still going to be there. Um, and I think probably around grief, like I'm going to talk tomorrow about Black Lives Matter in gaming culture and like how that connects and where that's, where, where that surfaces. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a large part of like collective grief and sort of sense making going on as people play. Mm. So there's certainly that like, psychodynamic I guess component to it though I don't think I'm using psychoanalysis in any direct way but certainly those concerns are are in that domain yeah what is it would you say that makes a game a game and not a movie I mean cinema studies has these conversations too like do they is this a movie you know like what makes a movie there's so much of that in game studies is like what is a game you know like that is not even that hasn't been there's no consensus on what is a game oh wow um mm, mm. (laughs) it's like so is it interactive fiction you know, what's different, like something that you're reading on the screen and it's kind of animated, but then you're pushing a button choosing A or a B. Like Netflix has interactive movies. There's interactive episodes that you can play slash watch. Oh, wow. Um, I did not Netflix know that. Netflix and Amazon. I think I would be scared of it, to be honest. <laughs> Amazon. Yeah, but no. What makes a game a game and not a movie? I think we don't know. I think that those lines are completely dissolved Mm. and I mean that's what I was kind of saying in this Spike Lee article of like Mm. I mean I called it procedural cinema you know just to give it a name because I like making up names for things yeah that's a good one you know because it's like proceduralist it's logic it's the rule bound world of the video game and then Spike Lee made a movie and he talks about it as a movie in the game he's Mm. on screen being like I'm director Spike Lee and if you didn't know I invented this shot and like he's giving a a like film history lesson in the video game in a sports basketball video game um <laughs> to his audience who may not know you know film techniques and yeah. so spike lee was like i'm kind of the shit and you should know like i just made a movie in your game hello my name is spike lee i hope you enjoyed our nba 2k 16 feature film living the dream dolly a little faster a little faster you know i'm on the dolly this is my signature shot he had a great and so is that not a movie because spike lee just (laughs) called it a movie so therefore this is a movie and you know so that was cinema in nba 2k 16 is what i was talking about but that is a mode of storytelling that's a style of storytelling that continues you know um across like other franchises like the football franchise madden about the basketball franchises everybody has to have their story mode that is a movie you know you're the but you're the star in the movie dr francis mm. you can put and literally put yourself in the game but because see, you got your camera phone and you take a picture of your face i do it every year i can't stop even though i know it's bad in terms of biometric data let's just put this out there listeners okay you're doing 12 <laughs> shots of your face you know every like pore in your face you know my birthmarks my moles whatever it's all digitized on sony servers which we know get hacked repeatedly yeah. okay we're is that information going and then they can create a digital version of you a masculinized digital version i get to be like an 18 year old basketball player really this is my ultimate dream in life if i could have another hobby and be completely reinvent myself sure i would be an nba star absolutely let me have it so you can do that and so you're starring not only in the game but in the movie 
of yourself as a basketball player or football player you choose so no i don't know that we know anymore of what is a game (laughs) what is a movie what is here what is not here i mean you're making me this may be not at all related (laughs) but i've had a preoccupation with Catfish, the TV show. Okay, okay. I will say right now on the record, I have seen every episode, okay. all seven seasons. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. that I understand this program. I have no idea what Catfish is. Oh my gosh. Show. I don't know. This is MTV's Catfish. And um, this is a show, the, the one of the hosts of the show himself was Catfish. To Catfish is, um, it's this metaphor that I guess that takes off from how fishermen keep codfish and other kinds of, mm-hmm. you know, nice fish alive by putting catfish in the bottom and they swirl around and they keep the other fish kind of active. Mm-hmm. So it's both about the sort of bottom feeding, but it does have a function in that it animates the other fish. Mm-hmm. So um, somebody's catfishing you, right? They are, um, they develop this online relationship mm-hmm. with you with, some use sometimes using pictures they got off of Google, right, right? Or supermodel pictures or whatever. So in this show, it's like these people call right into the show. I'm in love with this person. I want to marry them. I've been with him for five years online, mm-hmm. and it's time to meet. And when they meet, sometimes it is who they think it is. <laughs> okay. Um, but something else is off. Okay. Sometimes it's not at all who they think it is. Right. And what struck like 90 Day Fiance. I know that show. Don't get me started. I know that show. But with Catfish, what struck me was that a lot of the catfishers are quite vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Trans people in a town where they feel unsafe. And the catfish fisher is the decept- this deceiver? Yes, okay. is the deceiver. The, is the deceiver. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the deception is coming from a place of seeking protect. The mask is protecting them and allowing them to create this intimacy and to have relationships with people. Right. Um, that they otherwise wouldn't be able to have. Um, black women who are in towns, you know, where they're like the only black girl in, in the school. Right, right. And so they pretend to be, right, you right, know, right, right, right. I don't know. Oh, they have this online fantasy life. Which, yes. Uh, we know what's going to happen. It's, yeah. It's, so the other part, of course, when they see them, they feel betrayed. Mm-hmm. It's super sad and everything like that. And the show does do a lot to try to... Um, create some empathy for the deceiver. Mm-hmm. Why are they doing right. this? But it does seem like, you know, this this idea that of a freedom because of a mask or mm-hmm. within a mask, mm-hmm. the protection that masks offer right. um, seems to be um, an important, but I have to say to me, frightening possibility yeah. with... Um, VR and with these types of immersive games mm-hmm. where you're switching identity. I don't know. I feel both, um, like I always use this analogy, like, okay, we're in the matrix, you know? Okay. Like everybody come here. We're in the matrix right now. We're here. And like, we have to figure out, is there a Nebuchadnezzar? Is there like a Zion? Like, is there a way out of the matrix that is not as 
beautified and as simulated you know is there a real outside of this space or not but we live in this constantly mediated represented culture where you can't figure out half the time what's real and what's not what's fake and what's fabricated intentionally maliciously and what's not and so like yes i do think that we're not at a place where you can turn some of that off and still locate whatever your real is. Mm. But I think we are quickly approaching a place where that's going to be jeopardized. And more importantly, where people, where a majority of people either don't care about jeopardizing that or feel in a defeated way that there's nothing we can do about it. Mm. Right. That we have, uh, we have arrived at a moment where we are, walking around with computers you know like our cell phones are not cell phones it was the best marketing scheme ploy ever to Mm -hmm. call the iphone a phone because like this is a lot of things but i don't even know how to work the phone on mine i got a missed phone call and it took me a good 15 to 20 seconds to figure out where the hell i could go and listen to that and i mean that's not a phone right it's Mm -hmm. it's a computer we have computers stuck on us wearable the Fitbits and the iWatches yeah. and everything mm. and then we have them with us and we're constantly dialed in and we're so that so that is our mediated existence right mm. and so um yeah I'm concerned about it as like a just personally critically and then I'm also like in it you know yeah. I'm not an advocate at least for my own personal stakes I don't what I don't play VR games like I've tried it a headset a few times I don't write about VR and I sort of set boundaries on like what I want to spend a lot of time in because in the video games that I play you know I've spent hundreds of hours in those worlds trying to think about them and play them and enjoy them or whatever and I don't want to spend that much time in a VR space mm. but that's kind of just my personal limitation it's like I don't want it. That's too much. You know, I've seen how convincing that can be. I think it's only going to get better or worse, depending on your perspective. And, you know, I know how this ends. I've seen all the sci-fi movies. It doesn't end well, okay? We've been cautioning ourselves with our, Mm -hmm. like, dystopian literature and other media forever, saying that, like, oh, by the time you get there, the Terminators, you know, like, pick a series, pick a franchise, and, like, trace how, how things things end up where we're more and more enmeshed in these spaces and we're more and more sort of willingly like, okay, whatever, mm. you know, tell me my reality. Um, so I kind of want to hold on to my agency, my black agency, my human agency for as long as I can. And however, I guess I'm trying to define that, you know, but, but critically, intellectually, I still want to be aware of what's going down in the VR world. So that's why I ask my students, yeah. what are you playing in VR? Mm-hmm. What is it like? And I've seen a little bit of it. Yeah. And I've seen enough to see, yeah, cautionary, resistant, but just kind of like aware of the speed at which these things are also changing. Yeah. Let's um kind of turn to what you're gonna talk about when you while you're here. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You're interestingly part of two series. Um, okay. One is the Cultural Voices series right. that um, you know that Ray's doing, and I'm continuing this before representation series where we focus on not representation but those those underlying structures, mm-hmm. um, the invisible ones. 
that um, that do their work before we see what we see. But those are broad, super broad frameworks yeah. that can be interpreted lots of different ways. So, like, I wonder if you could just kind of give us, um, and and also what we record here is going to be the trace, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. you leave, yeah, um, when you're not here. Sure, so, I wonder if you sure. could just kind of give us like the the core of your talk. Yeah, well, it's it's. More than one talk, because uh, it's like an hour and 15 minutes. It won't be that tomorrow. I'll choose what to kind of pull from that is 40 minutes yeah. so that we can actually talk about it. Um, because it was really helpful to talk with the class today. You know, like, say, this is what I'm thinking about, but then what, what do you guys think? And, like, really talk about it. Yeah, it was really I love that. exciting. It was really fun. And it's hard to be vulnerable in those spaces where you're like, I haven't figured it all out yet, but I haven't. And, you know, and then you open up to that. Um so I want to talk about representation with you because actually I think that, you know, because uh, Ray asked me in his class today, you know, what do you think you contribute as someone coming from an English uh, PhD background to game studies and like what's different for you in writing about games and how other people approach it? And there's certainly a difference. Let's be clear. Like I always feel like I'm the black person that doesn't quite fit in with whatever circle I'm in. Mm. And it's like, damn it, how does that keep happening? You know? <laughs> Now, um, professionally, that happens a lot because, like, I did a little, you know, black media studies, but, like, I wouldn't say I'm a core black media studies person either, you know, and sort of the way that, like, I don't know, lots of my friends and my, my colleagues, you and, like, other folks who study, like, black, you know, media industries and archives and history, you know, I sort of have some of those influences, some of those, you know, concerns and backgrounds and questions, but there's a limit to it because then I was like, oh, I'm over here and I'm doing this. Yeah. And so, like, being really interdisciplinary, and I just always like to say promiscuous, you know, I'm promiscuous <laughs> with my methodology and I know no shame about it, yeah. but it's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's uncomfortable being in these spaces and being like I have a little bit of this I have a little bit of that and this is how I bring it you know to the table yeah. and I'm still like trying to enrich and, and deepen certain things too and then bring in other things that are interesting so I want to talk to you about representation because I think what I've been told and this is how it's sort of framed is that what I do in game studies is representational analysis I think it of as like cultural analysis cultural studies I call it digital cultural studies because um, that just sounds cool, but I know that part of what I'm working on now is how representation works and how the way game studies as a whole thinks about representation, like representation is image, you know, representation is like characters and storylines and that's representation for game studies, like cultural concerns, like that's representation. And then like there's hardware and there's history and there's code and there's like mechanics and that's like the other stuff. So there's always been this tension in game studies. Uh, It used to be ludology and narratology, like people who are like, a game is a game. And people who are like, no, a game is narrative. You know, and so like, there have been these debates for a while, and now it's like representation and computation. Mm-hmm. And what I have been arguing, at least I think consistently, but maybe not clearly enough or deeply and richly enough, is that it's all representation. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the code is representation. What is code? Like, what what we do with computers and what we, we do with video games and what we do with anything, you know, that is a device is dealing with its representations. We're not dealing at the most elemental levels um, of, we're dealing with interfaces. We're dealing with the computer's generation 
of like interpretation of that code, you know, representation of everything before us. It's an interpretation and interpretive meaning making system that we're dealing with. And so like, I don't see how you can think about computation aside from, I don't see how you can think about them separately. I think that there are, they are all representational systems. And I, that's important to me. And so I'd like to know like how you're talking and thinking about representation and how the series has focused on representation and like, you know, because I'm so promiscuous, like, <laughs> you know, maybe the way that we think about representation in media studies yeah. is different. I mean, you know, so anyway, I'd like to have that conversation about representation. Terry. Yeah. You know, Dr. Terry Francis, what is representation? <laughs> you know, so that I, yeah can kind of really, you know, relate to that and sort of build on that. But also I think that that's something that game studies needs. There's like more complex ways of thinking about representation. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of ways to think about representation. Uh, but I think because we're talking about this ability, inability to like figure out what's real, you know, that's the the representational codes of the, the representational frame has won, mm-hmm. right? This is Baudrillard's like, hyperrealism and simulacra, right? The simulacra, like Baudrillard's like, you can't get out of the Matrix. You know, his famous yeah. uh, response to the Matrix was like, the Matrix is the perfect, is is the exactly the movie that the Matrix would make about itself. Mm. <laughs> you know, that like, you're not, there's no out. There's no out of the Matrix to be able to step back and be like, ooh, you know, that simulated world over there, yeah. we see that it's not reality. Baudrillard was like, you just can't can't get out you're in it now that's it right Mm. so from within the first matrix i designed was quite naturally perfect it was a work of art flawless sublime and triumph equaled only by its monumental failure the inevitability of its doom is apparent to me now as a consequence of the imperfection inherent in every human being thus i redesigned it based on your history to more accurately reflect the varying grotesqueries of your nature however i was again frustrated by failure. I have since come to understand that the answer eluded me because it required a lesser mind, or perhaps a mind less bound by the parameters of perfection. Thus the answer was stumbled upon by another, an intuitive program, initially created to investigate certain aspects of the human psyche. If I am the father of the Matrix, she would undoubtedly be its mother. The Oracle. Please. As I was saying, she stumbled upon a solution whereby nearly 99% of all test subjects accepted the program as long as they were given a choice, even if they were only aware of the choice at a near unconscious level. While this answer functioned, it was obviously fundamentally flawed, thus creating the otherwise contradictory systemic anomaly that if left unchecked might threaten the system itself. Ergo, those that refuse the program, while a minority, if unchecked, would constitute an escalating probability of disaster. I mean, for us, the series took on the shape of the presenter. Mm. So we were able to look at representation in very specific spheres. So, for example, we had a history of a historian of library science and um, she told us about the history of insurgent and radical librarians mm-hmm. who redid uh, the Dewey Decimal System, mm-hmm. where it used to be that all of the black stuff was all under colonialism or mm-hmm. all under slavery. They're like, no, 
We need a literature number. Yeah. We need an art number. Like the numbers associated with black culture. Yes. And art. Yeah. Like because, represent, representational codes? Yes, yeah. Um, well, okay. that's what it turns out, that these are representational codes. They shape our imaginary. Yeah. And so now we can think about Langston Hughes in terms of literature yeah. rather than having him in this box, just kind of in this mishmash yeah. with um, under slavery and defined by that particular mm-hmm. traumatic mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. So that um, so that was one formulation. This history of librarians, um, like Dorothy West, um, primarily, who mm-hmm. um, took on this mission of right. reorganizing our information. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah okay. It's, that relates. Yeah. It's that relates, deep. Right. Yeah. That's what. That's that. We're dealing with the representational culture and the fight for mm-hmm. how to frame things and what meaning to that's derive. It what the code is Mm -hmm. you know that if you want to switch the language around in this moment because that's more relatable to talk about code and data and information Mm -hmm. as opposed to other terms that we might have used but yeah we're talking about this system of meaning making yes exactly how we understand ourselves like i think Stuart hall said you know without representation um, we're unintelligible to like you can't communicate. We're unintelligible to each other. Like yeah. there's no way to communicate, and so culture is doing that representational work. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Okay, that sounds awesome. Yeah. No, it was great. <laughs> it was a great talk, a real revelation. The other yeah. two talks um, were more directly on like race proper. I mean, race in terms of just like the abstract concept of race, whereas mm-hmm. that one was more specific to. Um, uh, to African American um, imagination, yeah. so the yeah. other one had to do with um, the the um, the represent the the rep- picturing skin tones, mm-hmm. so like flesh colored objects, um, and also just like intimate flesh colored objects, stockings, right. um, makeup, um, uh, crayons, things wow. things that you touch, things that you interact with that can either represent an imagination of all of us having lots of different skin tones mm-hmm. or can narrow that down and assume that everybody looks, you know, sort of pinkish mm-hmm. peach. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes up uh, both in these intimate objects, but also in photography and in film. So we had a good conversation about the lighting, you know, lighting practices. Right. And of right. course, the history of Kodak you know, being made for white people. Yeah. And uh, and that it was only through the complaining of advertisers of chocolate and um, like kind of like wooden wood furniture mm-hmm. that the that Kodak had to make more nuanced film um, because the, the way that they were photographing it, you couldn't tell the difference between dark chocolate, milk chocolate or ebony wood um, wow. and mahogany and wow. oak. So that's like, so these structures are really deep and it's these assumptions, you know what I mean? The third talk was, um, was actually um, based on that book, How to Be Less Stupid About Race mm-hmm. uh, by Crystal Fleming. And there, I mean, it, it was really just like race itself as this underpinning structure, mm-hmm. like not an immutable fact of our bodies, but something that is put onto our bodies that then shapes how we see ourselves and see other people. So across the series, what I'm interested in bringing to our communities here is information about how race is, 
Well, it is personal in certain ways. Mm-hmm. You cannot be racist to people. Like that's something that is felt on in your body, in your feelings, in very um, visceral ways. Mm-hmm. But it's also impersonal and right. seems to have a life of its own, right. um, shaping everything about who we are and how we interact, mm-hmm. you know, and that this happens. I was interested in thinking not just about the manifest, but the um, but the before right. and the behind the scenes. So it, the before is really a way of referring to this formation I was about to say invisible formation, but it does have agents. Mm-hmm. These are decisions that people make where they just don't, they just, it's not important to them that black people are photographed properly, mm-hmm. you know? And then as a consumer, you get used to bad pictures of yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't know what your skin looks like on in pictures. Right, right. Or if you are the, um, the black child in the white yeah. classroom, you just get used to like, yes, that's you with the teeth. Right. And, you know, and everyone around you, you know, is going to say, oh, but, you know, oh, that's you. Oh, you're so, oh, no, don't worry about it. That's just you. And, right, right. But you're somewhere in you. Yeah. I think you know yeah. that that is not what you look like. How come I can't look like I look in the mirror? Um, and then, of course, whatever social tensions are happening around you. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah. So, I mean, gaming is... This other like kind of exciting territory, and I oh, think it's related. It's yeah, all related. <laughs> and then you know, for us, like I'm really um, together with Ray. Like we're really interested in bringing critical, vital thinking mm-hmm. to gaming because we are so I think practice focused mm-hmm. and so design focused. And, right. Right. Um, and yet, I think your presence is kind of magnetizing all these people who are like, yes, we want to talk about this too. Right. You know, so it's really exciting to have you here. So in one minute, I'll say what I'm talking about tomorrow is yeah. about, it's just the whole project is on brokenness in games and broken games. And so like I argue with the Sims chapter, you know, this is what black women have done with a broken structure um, for representing blackness is they've done all this other work and then it's spawned off, it's branched off into all these other media properties that they've created around it. And similarly for tomorrow, I'm talking about like what happens with a broken game, Grand Theft Auto five and, um, sort of, I guess, collective black grief and, like, sense-making and processing around police violence. So around key moments of, of like, Black Lives Matter moments where, you know, um, the death of, of, of Eric Gardner, of Trayvon Martin, of um, Mike Brown, and how um, players of games, you know, like The Sims and like Grand Theft Auto, have used the game space to kind of process that. And so I talk about it as a departure from the brokenness of the game um which is like in terms of its racial logics uh, broken like there's definitely you know versions or parts of these games that are broken um in terms of how race is represented and on top of that what players are doing to kind of make sense of like both the brokenness of this world and like of our various systems offline and navigating the sort of broken structures and possibilities in the game world by creating their own works out of that kind of intersection so um yeah that's what i'm talking about Mm. 
Looking forward to it. Okay. Oh, and how that's all queer, by the way, because, you know, it comes back to kind of queer as in blackness is queer, right? Like sort of working with that term, not necessarily queer in terms of sexuality, because the the players that I'm talking about tomorrow do not identify as queer, but it's blackness as queer function, like black identities, queer function in relationship to the state as citizens, right? How you both have rights and don't have rights, um, how you can be like here or not there, things like queer temporality how things seem to never change right so despite all the technological advances and the next game and the next moment historically things do not change so that's why how I'm working on it as a queer kind of reality and part of the reason I'm framing it in that way is because I think we need to like as a black community work more with that term like black lives matter is all about like centering queer subjectivities as like none of us are free until we're all free but also just because in game studies right now like representing and thinking about games as queer is very common and popular. And so part of my ch- my challenge to game studies is like, why isn't blackness queer? And like, we already know blackness is queer. We have known that because like theorists have been saying that for a long time in terms of our relationship to the state. But it's not, this is not material that mm-hmm. um, gaming scholars or even queer gaming scholars want to touch because I don't know. The man. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, that's it. Broken, queer, black, Black Lives Matter, fan culture, gaming culture, representation. Beautiful. Beautiful.